we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Clasco Immigration Law Partners. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, a podcast by Clasco Immigration Law Partners. Today we're going to discuss Indian investors and some project-related questions that come up frequently. We'll also discuss some common misconceptions that Indian investors have about projects and project-related issues. I'm Anu Nair. I'll be your host today. I'm joined by Daniel Lundy, a partner at Clasco Immigration Law Partners, and Jessica Denisi, an associate attorney at the firm as well. I'm also excited to have with us two guests from Can-Am. We have Jeffrey DeChico, CEO at Can-Am Investor Services, and Abhinav Lohia, a VP of India and Middle East Office at Can-Am. So welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Anil. So as I mentioned at the outset, we're going to be talking a little about Indian investors and projects and project selection and project-related issues. In our previous podcast, we started talking about you know, why there's such a huge influx of Indian investors towards EB-5 as opposed to other types of immigration law. But when you're talking about having a new um, group of people starting to look at a specific type of immigration law, that can come with some growing pains where maybe the market is not quite as advanced or maybe the um they don't know what they're looking for or what to ask or how to ask those questions. So we're hoping today's podcast is going to help with that. Now, the first question that all of my investors have is a reduction in fees. So I thought that would be the appropriate place to start this podcast. So Jeff and Abby, I'm going to turn to you. Uh, do you guys see these questions a lot about, you know, is there any way that you can lower the fees if you can't lower the investment fees, is there anything else that you can help me out with? So I think that uh, that's probably one of the first questions that, like you said, that we get from investors. And people have this feeling, I think, especially in a newer market, India is a newer market in EV5. It's only really become active in the last two or three years where they think that EV5 is a commodity, meaning everyone provides the same service. Every regional center has a project that will get you a green card, that will get you the same return, et cetera. So then why not negotiate on price? And I think that's probably one of the biggest, that's the biggest learning curve in any new market. We've seen in China, uh, which is a much more mature market in EV5, those questions don't really ever get asked. And I think the reason is because the Chinese market has been around for 10 or 12 years and investors have suffered through project failures uh, and other things. So people have become savvy learning that just because something is cheaper doesn't mean necessarily it's, it's a better option. I think that's a, a great point. And I know we have kind of similar questions when investors are coming to us and they're asking for a reduction in legal fees as well. And one of the things that I always say is, look, the project and the attorney, you're sticking with us for at least five years. And this is not the point where you want to try to negotiate in terms of fees because um, a few thousand dollars that you save now could result in headaches over the course of the next five years if you're just purely picking a project purely based on fees and an attorney purely based on fees as well. 
Um, so one of the things that I always say is, you know, if I am going skydiving, I'm not going to try to negotiate fees and go with the cheapest person. And that's kind of how I feel about the investment. Also, you're talking about $500,000 investment. I think it's worth it to spend a few extra thousand dollars to make sure that you're mitigating your risks as much as possible. Well, and it's also about your uh, time as well, because, you know, if, if you pick the wrong attorney up front, what often happens is the documents will be incomplete. They won't be uh, as good as they can be. You'll get RFEs or NOIDs, and that's going to add, you know, could add six months, could add a year to your processing time. And then, you know, if you get a denial, you may end up having to come hire us anyway to, to fix the denial after the fact. So um, the next question that I'm constantly asked is um, about the project. A lot of my investors previously seemed to want you know, a project that's related to the STEM fields because that's what they were most comfortable with. What are you seeing or what did you see historically that Indian investors were looking for? And have you seen any recent changes now that the market's developing in terms of the location and the types of projects? A couple of years ago, Indian investors actually did not care. Uh, it was mostly lack of information uh, where they are investing and uh, all because this was the first time they were hearing about EB-5 and they would just rely on attorneys uh, on giving them like five, six options and they chose from uh, those five, six options. Today, the market has completely changed where Investors are researching on their own. Uh, they're primarily looking for projects in New York or San Francisco or some place where they have, you know, relatives where they have, you know, some kind of, uh, relationship to that geography where, you know, their relatives can go and check out the project. Um, and earlier, I guess there was, there's always been attraction towards hotel projects um but i guess now uh there is a shift towards commercial uh real estate projects because uh, investors have started to understand that uh you know their funds are coming back after five or seven years and commercial real estate projects that have lessees with long-term leases um have more uh you know, these projects are more secure in terms of revenue as opposed to maybe a hotel project that's there. You know, they have nightly charges. So I guess that's the shift in the industry that we are seeing. Yeah, on our, on our side, we see a a greater immigration risk when you have a, a business that's re reliant on operations to create the jobs. So right. if you have a construction project, you know, most of the jobs are created by the actual construction expenditures. If you actually have to operate, say, a manufacturing plant, you're reliant on your ability to operate successfully and actually sell enough of your product to employ enough people, uh, have enough revenue to actually meet the job creation requirements. So, you know, to some extent, the real estate prog projects have less immigration risk than, you know, some kinds of app operating businesses. I think you guys are, are both right when, you know, back in 2012, when I started getting my first handful of Indian investors, they always seemed to want to go to manufacturing jobs. They wanted to go towards um, hospitals that, you know, they, they relied quite heavily on operations job. And now 
Abby, as you mentioned, we're starting to see a shift towards uh, the real estate components of, of these jobs. And I think, Dan, you brought up a good point that a lot of it is safety and construction. And now the uh, market is starting to kind of understand what that means. So um, one of the things that uh, Indian investors are now looking into is, you know, who is going to be the investor? And I think there's multiple factors that Kind of make up that decision for them of if it's, is it going to be um, one of the parents or the child or if it's going to be one spouse versus the other so um, when we first go into uh, residency requirements we're having a podcast on that so we're just going to touch briefly uh, about the fact that you know you just want to make sure that whoever's planning on staying in the country more is is planning on being the investor um, in terms of when you're deciding between spouses. But I wanted to discuss on this podcast about retrogression and deciding between a parent and a child um, and, you know, when to make that decision. So, um, Abby and Jeff, let's say if we have, if you get a call from an investor um, or a potential investor and they're saying, hey, I'm from India, my child is 20 years, 10 months old, um, you know, and we're trying to decide who should be the investor. Can you take me through what types of uh, what that conversation would sound like with the potential investor? Um, yeah, so uh, th this is a really common question or situation that arises. And uh, almost on every trip to India, I'm asked this question. And uh, my answer is always that if uh, if a qualifying dependent is over 20 years, I I prefer that uh, an application is filed as that person as the primary investor because um, if India hits retrogression in say 2019 or 2020 um, and this person is not the primary investor and he or she will not get a green card and most likely the family is going through all this trouble of filing an EB5 petition is that they want to settle this person uh, who, who's probably studying here or about to get a job here um, and uh, does not want to go through the whole H-1B visa process. So I think the entire purpose will be defeated if India hits retrogression because this particular qualifying dependent will not qualify uh, in the family petition. Yeah, we've seen that a lot recently, and we just had an investor that, that is trying to come on board with us that is almost in that exact same situation, three months until uh, twin children turn right. turn 21. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, they're in a particularly bad situation. And so for them, we explained the risks. We went through the whole thing over and over again, and ultimately the, the investor decided we're comfortable with that risk. We're going to take a chance with it. We realize there is, I said, realize it's likely there will be retrogression and your children won't qualify. And he said, I understand that. Um, but he wants to take the chance that they'll still qualify or that perhaps that this is addressed in the next year, year and a half, or perhaps his, his, uh, petition gets expedited or not expedited, but gets adjudicated quickly. Um, so I think for us, especially as, as a securities dealer, it's important that they completely understand all of the risks and if they're willing to take it, uh, I understand that's, you know, for this investor, that made sense. Right. Yeah. Retrogression, unfortunately, is really, really difficult to predict. I mean, we have people saying that, you know, as of now, if an Indian investor files, they may be subject to a backlog 
you know, we have people saying definitely by summer of next year, there's going to be a cutoff date. Um, but on the other hand, we don't know if USCIS is going to, by regulation, raise the investment amount or Congress is going to raise the investment amount or is going to somehow give us more visa numbers. And all of these factors, you know, push and pull against each other to determine what the, what the actual backlog is and, and when it will start. Um, you know, and of course, the backlog is based on a per country limit. No country can have more than 7% of the total. Uh, but as long as it, the rest of the world doesn't use up all of their quota, then the leftovers go to the countries that are backlogged. So demand for, so the Indian backlog doesn't just depend on India, it depends on usage in the rest of the world. So if, for instance, a bunch of Chinese people who have, you know, very long wait time for visas decide that they're going to give up and back out of the program, that may in fact open up slots, you know, for other people, including Indians. So the, the backlog is really difficult to project. Um, but you're right. It definitely is a risk. And I, I think even if someone were over 18 at this point, we'd say that there's a risk. So, yeah, I mean, we're sticking with about the, the 20 years. And I mean, it's always with the caveat or we don't know what it's going to look like. But um, if your child is 20 years right now, that's when we start having the conversation of, you know, what's the primary purpose, as you mentioned, Dubby and, and Jeff, about the the primary purpose of the, the EB-5 application. Now, Jeff, you actually started talking about something that I get a lot of questions on, which is securities-related questions. And basically, um, you know, I always have to come back and say, I'm not securities attorney, so I can't advise you on this. So reach out to the project and they'll be able to, to assist you either directly or through their securities counsel. So the question always is, what is an, an accredited investor and how do I become an accredited investor? Right. We, we come across this all the time, obviously, as well. And so for us, our offerings at Can-Am, we, um, that, that go through Can-Am Investor Services, our broker-dealer, we only accept accredited investors. What that means is that, that the investor, the primary applicant, has to have a net worth of $1 million or has to have made $200,000 a year from the prior two years and reasonably believe that they're going to make that in the, in the following year, or for a married couple, make $300,000 a year. This obviously presents a pretty difficult situation for uh, students who are in the U.S. So what we see, obviously a student may not be liquid for a million dollars. And so what usually our our investors do is rather than just gifting, uh, if they're paying for their child to do EB-5, rather than just gifting the student the $550,000 it takes to do EB-5, they will gift them $1 million. And so at that point, they become an accredited investor. And so when you're talking about, it depends on the regional center. Some regional centers have rules where they'll accept non-accredited investors. Others have rules where they only accept accredited investor. But that should be one of the first things, um, you know, that any investor should ask in terms of qualification. That That's actually a very good point because I, what I'm seeing uh, some of the times is that that question doesn't kind of come up until near the end when... People are filling out questionnaires and getting ready to sign subscription documents. But yeah, it's something that, 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 yeah, that we meant, but we mentioned that at the beginning, you know, just double check with the uh, regional centers, because I think you're right. I think we're starting to see more and more are requiring everyone to be an accredited investor. Uh, So it, it is something that Indian investors should be aware of. And it's not that it can't be met. I've rarely seen circumstances where 
you know, they haven't been able to prove that they're an accredited investor. It's just a matter of kind of getting that information up front and the investors being knowledgeable about asking for that information up front as well. Exactly right. And we, in our case, we won't even share offering documents or any significant materials about the project until after they've been accredited. That's great. Um, so this actually leads to my next topic that I wanted to discuss, which are common misconceptions. So as I mentioned at the outset, you know, we have, this is a new market for EB5, new as in in the past year and a half, we started to see a boom in the Indian EB5 market. But along with that comes just a wide array of misinformation that gets put out into the, uh, into the field. And it almost feels like half of my consultations are correcting misconceptions. And then we actually start giving the, the correct information. So I wanted to uh, give you both uh, Jeff and Avi, and as well as Dan and Jess, to talk about any misconceptions that's out there that you want to kind of clear up and hopefully um, not be asked those questions. Um. Ooh, can I sure. start this one? Oh, sure, Dan. Go ahead. <laughs> so I've been asked uh, probably five or six times in the last week, um, do I have to invest all $500,000 at once? So let's answer that right away. Yes. <laughs> um, before you file the 526, we really, you know, you must file, you must invest all $500,000. There are, you know, occasional exceptions to this. Uh, if somebody has the money in their possession, but they're in the process of transferring and we can show that, that they have the money and it's available and they're going to invest it because there's an irrevocable investment document, uh, we really prefer not to. If there's any possibility at all, we, we want to see $500,000 invested up front before they file the 526 because otherwise they're going to get a guaranteed RFE. And if they can't show that all $500,000 has been invested, they're going to get denied. And the RFE is just going to add three to six months to your processing time. So, you know, unless there, we, we try very hard not to do that. Right. Um, so, I mean, obviously there's a lot of misinformation in India. Um, the most common one that I've heard is that all the jobs are created in the project. So there are no Im immigration risks. Um, I'm not sure if that's uh, a correct statement because a lot can go wrong even if all the jobs are created. And I mean, this statement is mostly made by regional centers that are replacing bridge finance and the projects already made. Um, they fail to mention that uh, there are criteria that USCIS considers in approving bridge finance models and, you know, all of that. And they just simply say, hey, this is a project. All the jobs are created. Your immigration is guaranteed. Um, that comes up a lot. And then there's another uh, uh, really funny thing that I've heard is that a regional center is, uh, has mentioned it to investors that if they fail to return their capital, they'll give them condos in return. Uh, so basically securing whole or part of their investment and thereby disqualifying all investors from EB-5. Uh, but I, I've definitely heard that. And uh, I mean, but most most regional centers, not most, I mean, 
some regional centers just like to make a statement that it's risk free and green card is guaranteed yes so that is a question that i get every single consult either at the first question or the last question is so guarantee that this is going to work and when i say i cannot guarantee it they're like no no you don't have to put it in writing just tell me that it's guaranteed right, right? like i can't do that and there's no person in this process who should be guaranteeing you anything there's steps you can take to mitigate the risks that you're willing to take on but if anyone's guaranteeing you anything in this process you should really consider reevaluating this don't use the g word <laughs> yes for, for me the thing that disturbs me the most what i see the most misinformation is People will tell me about, they'll be promising adjudication times, how fast the I-526 is going to be adjudicated. I can tell you, we've done 56 projects. We've had a project that was nearly completely built and we didn't get our first I-526 approval for 22 months. Mm -hmm. At the same time, and that project, by the way, had exemplar approval as well. At the same time, we had a project that ground hadn't broken yet and we got an I-526 approval in seven months. So however far along the project is, in terms of how quickly the adjudication will happen, there's, to me, I've not seen any type of, there, there's no guarantee, there's no, that we can't even determine a trend. It is, right. I try to explain to everyone, it's the government. It's just completely whimsical, right. basically. It, it, it'll happen when it happens. And, and sometimes we'll see a bunch of approvals on a case, and then they'll stop. Right. Yes. <laughs> and then, you know, a year later, they'll start again, and there's really no rhyme or reason, and, and it has nothing to do with the project. It's all, some of it is just whose desk it lands on in USCIS. And I'm speculating here, but it, maybe it lands on someone's desk and then that person leaves USCIS and it gets reassigned. You know, I, whatever it is, the internal workflow process is not consistent or predictable. So yeah, processing time, you can never guarantee processing time. And I hate even telling people about it because they, all, yeah. they always prove me wrong. No, that's exactly <laughs> it. So, I mean, I have investors where right now, well, not right now, about a year and a half ago, I was saying, look, based on current processing times, I would guess about 16 to 18 <laughs> months, but that processing time can change. And, you know, like clockwork at exactly 16 months, I'll get an email that says, you said 16 months, right? right? And right. no matter how many caveats we give, it, it's just, it works, but yeah, no one should be guaranteeing you a specific timeline also. We're doing really, our best, but go ahead. That, that's really the first sign I was going to say that that someone is, that you're not dealing with someone who has experience in this business and they're trying to make a sale. Someone saying, you should invest with us because you're going to get a quicker approval. Uh, you know, That's the first red flag to me. I mean, uh, there are the, the a lot of regional centers that are out there that are selling package deals saying, we are your regional center, this is your attorney, we'll get you a green card. And investors think that that's the safest bet for them because uh, that particular attorney knows the regional center inside out, so they're very safe. Whereas I differ from that because if, if, a, if an attorney is coming in as a package deal, there's clearly a conflict of interest. And um, investors should be made aware that they have the right to hire their own attorney and uh, there are no such package deals. Yeah, we, I mean, I agree with you that all investors have the right to choose their own attorney and should do so based on you know, that attorney's experience. 
uh, and you know, level of quality rather than just who somebody right. suggests. On the other hand, we do have a number of projects and regional centers where we represent the regional center and we represent a number of the investors. Um, and some like it because there's an efficiency gain. You know, we, we know the project documents inside and out. We have the project documents, although, you know, we can never give them out because you have to accredit them first and we can't be part of the sales. Um, but, you know, there certainly is a, an efficiency to be gained there. And honestly, we have not yet had a conflict, even though we've had some deals that didn't go the way they were supposed to. But because we're immigration attorneys only and everybody wants the investors to get their green card, uh, we have not yet actually had a conf- conflict of interest. Not to say that it would never happen. It's certainly possible. Um, I'm less concerned about that dual representation than I am, as you said, if somebody's selling it as a package, that's right. concerned. Right. Yeah. And one of the other things is that, I mean, we have at this point, <laughs> I, have not, I think like a six page engagement letter and you need to list out all of the conflicts. Everything should be on there. I mean, I have clients that come back to me and say, this is a really long <laughs> engagement letter. Do I have to read all of it? It's like, yes, <laughs> because it's important. We list out the conflicts or potential for conflicts and, you know, what would it happen. But thankfully, as, as Dan said, even when some of the potential deals have not gone the way people expected, investors and regional centers alike have said, we want you to stay on because everyone wants the green cards there. Yeah. Um, and, with, and with Clasco and more to your point, you guys do um, have been around forever. You've probably done as many or more petitions than anyone else in the, in the history of the program. So you work with, dozens and dozens of regional centers. So it's not like you're some small operation that's beholden to one regional center and you're going to push that project. Right. You guys have been around. You've worked with everyone. (laughs) We're old souls at this. Oh, you are. Yeah. In this game, (laughs) you're one of the oldest. Right. So, um, I mean, this is actually going to be a question for all four of you. Um, Frequently asked questions that you wish investors would not ask. Oh, I, I, I'll start on this one. Um, <laughs> Jessica is very excited for this conversation. Uh, well, so I, I guess the, the, the question that bothers me the most is just an investor will say very generally, is this a good project? And I, I mean, that's just a question that we really can't answer. We can answer specific questions about immigration risks or job cushion or things like that. But um, we just can't outright, you know, endorse one project versus another project. Um, I, I think investors would be better served if they sort of familiar familiarize themselves with the uh, the project itself before looking for an attorney, uh, looking towards an attorney for advice. Um, for me, um, I wish our investors stop asking us that. A, you're making a spread on our investment, and but why are you charging us admin fee? Um, <laughs> and the second one is, uh, can you sign a side letter guaranteeing our funds? Yes. <laughs> so these yes. are the two questions. It's the G word, as, as Jeff said. <laughs> yeah. That's what they want. Exactly. Yeah. For me, I, I wish that they would not ask me questions uh, for answers they can easily find in the documents. Like, how many jobs are going to be created? <laughs> well, that's clearly in the package of documents that you have, which you really need to read. Um, look, I don't mind answering if you have specific questions, but 
you know, come on, read the documents first. <laughs> no, and, and, and I think one of the things I, I do want to point out is that, you know, you're talking about multiple people um, reviewing the same type of documents. So the frustration can be sometimes it feels like the investors just want us to sit on the phone with them and read the documents along with them. And and that's fine if that's what investors are looking for, but they're also looking for discounts and trying to keep us as efficient as possible in terms of not building up the hours for, for increasing legal fees. So that's what we mean in terms of, you know, something's going to have to give. It's just either if you can do that initial legwork and then ask questions after you've reviewed the documents, that'll help kind of make sure that, you know, the admin fees aren't going to go up, the legal fees aren't going to go up because if we're spending significantly more time just sitting on the phone with you reading the documents as you're reading them that is going to at some point i feel like the fees are going to have to be raised right and and for me i guess my to i to mirror a little bit what abi said is i wish the first question wasn't often what's the rate of return i'm going to get on this project uh i say the same thing over and over again I don't really know of any projects that have successfully returned capital that also re, uh, re gave the investor a significant rate of return. Those two things don't mix. I always say our owner, Tom Rosenfeld, basically said, says, I'm not smart enough to get you a return and get you a green card. So the focus should always be just on immigration and security of your capital. So that leads very nicely into the last question that I had for the group, which is what are the questions that you wish that investors would ask instead? Well, for me, that's easy. Um, and I think Jess can probably talk to this too, but we would really love the investors to be asking the project or the regional center, what kind of procedures do they have in place to make sure they're tracking the information and the, you know that they're going to need at the 829 stage, you know, job creation, uh, what are they doing to track expenditures and flow of money? Uh, what, it, who, what, it, what kind of oversight procedures are there to make sure that literally every penny is tracked and that every job is counted? And I think that piggybacking on that, a good question to ask, and the two are definitely related, is, you know, what's the track record of the regional center? Do they have a 29 approvals? Same thing for the project. Um, something that would give more assurance that things are actually going to work out from a green card perspective. When investors ask us, what's the rate of return? They should also ask us, why is it so low? And that would make sense because then they'll understand the capital stack and how secure their funds are. Uh, so I think it's not only what is the rate of return, but why uh is will always be a helpful question yeah i when when, other, when people investors mention other projects to me and i really don't like to talk about other projects specifically i just say to them if the easiest way to evaluate an ev5 project is to ask two questions what rate is the borrower paying when you find out what rate the borrower paying is what borrower is paying you can figure out the basic risk in the project and then the other thing is the regional center is have they ever completed this an EB-5 transaction from beginning to end, from I-526 approval to repayment? And so those are two ways you can kind of gauge the risk and the experience of the person involved. Yeah, and to add to that, um, another important question is whether the fund manager owns the regional center or it's a renter center. Because yeah. 
yeah, track record can be deceptive. And uh, they also need to ask, is this the developer's track record or is this the EB5 track record? Because developers have been like uh, someone who's a big New York developer may have a portfolio of 86 billion, but that can be represented as doing EB5 project with a developer with $86 billion portfolio, which to some may appear as this regional center has raised $86 billion in the past. So it's a mix of both. Well, thank you all for joining me. I hope that investors, um, you know, had some insight into this side of the, the aisle when you are talking to either a regional center or an attorney about the project. Now, as a reminder, if you have specific questions or specific topics that you want to discuss on the podcast, please email us at podcast at classicallaw.com. Thank you all for joining. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed. This content is for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell any security and should not be relied upon to make an investment decision. Can-Am Investor Services is a registered brokerage firm with FINRA and a member of SIPC.